Here's Griner going in for the throwdown. Houston rumbling through, finds Griner for the dunk. And that's what the sellout crowd was waiting for. Slam dunk, Brittany Griner. Brittany Griner is one of the WNBA's biggest stars. She's one of her team's most important players, and she's regularly in the running for MVP of the league. WNBA star Brittany Griner. She's detained in Russia facing drug charges. WNBA star Brittany Griner is being detained in Moscow as tensions ratchet up between Russia and the U.S. over the invasion of Ukraine. And so it's a very, very big deal that she is currently detained in a foreign country. Brittany Griner, one of the WNBA's biggest superstars, is currently being detained in Russia. Officials there say she was carrying vape cartridges with cannabis oil into the country. Marijuana is illegal in Russia. In addition to playing for the WNBA, Griner also plays for a Russian women's basketball team, and she was returning to join that team. There are still a lot of questions about Griner's safety and when she might be able to come home. But this incident has also raised questions about the way the WNBA compensates its athletes. Welcome to Pop Culture. I'm Bridget Armstrong. At least 50% of the WNBA is owned by the NBA, yet the two leagues are ran by very different standards. Today, a conversation about Brittany Griner and how low wages in the WNBA are driving athletes into potentially dangerous situations. I think to anyone listening in the U.S., it's not going to be much of a surprise that we know very little. Meredith Cash is a sports reporter at Insider. Tensions are obviously extremely high between the U.S. and Russian governments, given the situation in Ukraine. What we understand from reporting from CNN and the New York Times and other big outlets is that Greiner was taken into custody while traveling back to Russia to join her EuroLeague team. And she was detained at a Moscow airport for allegedly having a vape pen with cannabis oil on her person. And in Russia, drug offenses are taken extremely seriously. Even the slightest bit of marijuana on your person is enough to get a jail sentence. And so Russian customs agents say that they found a vape pen on her and that was a reason to launch a larger inquiry into whether or not she was smuggling drugs into the country. And so they took her into custody. We understand she was probably in custody for several weeks before mainstream publications in the United States were reporting it out, which, you know, to someone who reports on the league and is a fan and understands Griner's stature, like that's pretty disturbing that it took three weeks for everyone to find out. Presumably her team knew because they had games and she wasn't there. Some of her counterparts in the WNBA signaled that they had known that she'd been in custody for a while. But I think the general consensus on the U.S. side is that it was strategically beneficial to keep it quiet in order to help Griner get out of Russia. But it took about three weeks for it to become public and even still, I think the powers that be, whether it's her agent or the WNBA itself or her team, they're all 
trying to stay relatively quiet on it. Even the U.S. government is not offering very much information because I think the strategy here is the less focus on it, the better they are suited for negotiations. Let's take a step back for a second. What makes Brittany Griner a big deal? Brittany Griner is one of the WNBA's biggest stars. She is six foot nine. She's a center. You might remember her from her college days at Baylor because she dunks, and that got her a lot of attention early on in her career. Doc Griner just rolled perfectly. Slam dunk, Brittany Griner. That's her third. Of this game right. in 25 years, I don't know what is. She's gone on to succeed in huge ways in the WNBA. She plays for the Phoenix Mercury, and she's regularly one of the top players in the league. She rebounds like few other players in the history of the league. She's on track to be the leader in blocks. She's a force on both sides of the court. She's one of her team's most important players, and She's regularly in the running for MVP of the league. And in addition to her WNBA accolades, she is on Team USA and she has been like a crucial part of both of the team's last two gold medal runs. So you probably saw photos of her if you were watching the Olympics biting into her gold medal and just hanging out in Tokyo. So she's as good as anyone in the women's basketball space. And so it's a very, very big deal that she is currently detained in a foreign country. If Griner were a male basketball player with a reputation like that, she'd be a household name. But female basketball players don't get the same recognition or money that their male counterparts get. And that's raised a big question in the wake of Griner's arrest. Why was one of America's top women athletes playing for a Russian team in the first place? It's a fairly common practice for WNBA players and women sports stars in general, honestly, but we'll focus on basketball for the purposes of our discussion, to take their talents overseas when they're not playing domestically. It's a means to supplement their income. And, you know, I think my temptation is often to say that they're going to do their second or third jobs, but... Honestly, this is their primary source of income in a lot of cases. The average salary in the WNBA last season was $120,000, which, you know, is a substantial amount of money, but it's far less than men's professional athletes typically make or always make. That's less than minimum salaries in most major sports leagues. And it's also not that much money when you consider the narrow window of time that professional athletes have to actually take advantage of their talents. And so Griner, the best of the best, she made $221,000 last season. Her Russian team, which is called UMMC Ekaterinburg, they are a EuroLeague champion many, many times over, and she is surrounded by a bunch of WNBA superstars on that team. Lots and lots of players from the WNBA go there and top talent. She made a million dollars last year playing for ECAT. And so it's easy to see why players would head abroad and take advantage of this, even though obviously when your physical well-being is your livelihood, traveling overseas and playing year-round is not necessarily ideal. 
So you said Griner made around 220000 last year. The average salary is around 120. But can the salaries be lower than that? And then is Griner like representative at like the top of the salaries or do people make more than that as well? So Griner makes the maximum base salary in the WNBA and players are eligible to make more money than that with bonuses. If you win MVP, for example, you make more money. I'm sure that there's a bonus for being an all-star, which Brittany Griner was an all-star last year. There are bonuses for winning championships. And then the WNBA also offers money to players who decide to stay in the States during the offseason and promote the WNBA. And all of that put together, if you make the maximum salary, you earn all of those bonuses and you stay for the offseason, you can make up to $500,000. So it's a substantial amount of money, but again, significantly less than the million dollars that she was making for, say, six or seven months overseas. And what WNBA players can make now is a lot more than what it was a few years ago. In 2020, the WNBA players reached a landmark collective bargaining agreement with the league. And that nearly doubled salaries. Before 2020, Brittany Griner, who again, we made it very clear, she's cream of the crop, best in the league. She was probably not making six figures then. So it's... Very significant how much the CBA has helped in that regard, but relative to their male counterparts, obviously, it's, it's not even comparable. And it's not just the money. These athletes are often treated better when they play outside of the United States. The conditions that players play under in Russia, it may be surprising to some people, but They are treated like royalty. They have private drivers. They take chartered planes. They stay in luxury hotels. You know, the stuff NBA players get in the States. But the way Russian teams are funded is a little different than what we do here. A very successful Putin-aligned Russian businessman owns that team, and it's sponsored by UMMC, which is part of the name. That's a major mining company in Russia. And so... (laughs) Basically, the team and the owners can spend whatever they want on the team, and they do. So the players are largely shielded from typical Russian society, and they're treated far better than they are in the WNBA, frankly, in terms of accommodations. I do think that that's relevant context for the reason why Brittany potentially came into Russia, assuming she truly brought a vape pen with her. Of course, we have no idea if the allegations that Griner had a marijuana vape pen on her are even true. But Meredith told me this is why a player might assume Russian officials wouldn't care, even though drug possession is a serious crime there. There's been this long understanding that there's a different set of rules for star American athletes. It's another reason why athletes agree to play in countries like Russia in the first place. They're largely allowed to lead their normal lives. Another example of this Both Tarasi and Griner are members of the LGBT community, and they're not quiet about that. Tarasi is a WNBA player who also plays with Griner in Russia. And in Russia, that is completely unacceptable as well, which is one of the concerns about Griner now being in custody. But for years, that's been the case. And for years, players have been going overseas regardless. So 
I think it's worth mentioning that some things have clearly changed there. And what's changed, of course, is this. 35 people are dead, 134 injured after a deadly airstrike against a military base near Lviv in western Ukraine. Military experts say President Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine has not gone according to plan. Just a few days ago, Russian forces bombed a maternity hospital in Mariupol. It's day 18 of the war in Ukraine and there has been no let up in the fighting. or even $100,000 is a lot more money than the average American makes. And while it certainly isn't what an NBA player makes, it is a decent salary. So people might be tempted to ask, what's the problem? WNBA players are paid more than the average person to play a sport they seemingly like. Well, other than getting paid less for the same amount of work as your male counterparts, it's expensive to be an athlete. For a long time, these players were expected to foot the bill for their own bodily maintenance, for lack of a better term. If you think of your body as the the machine that fuels your career, right? You know, during the offseason, even if it's a, an extremely short window for these players who go overseas and are basically playing year round, you need to maybe do physical therapy to avoid injuries. You need to invest in, I don't know, those constricting boots that people wear to to help blood flow or like masseuses or anything else. I mean, we know that top players in men's professional sports leagues, like the LeBron Jameses, the Tom Brady's, even like Odell Beckham Jr. I wrote a story about him investing hundreds of thousands of dollars each year into his bodily upkeep. If WNBA players have to foot a bill like that, that's a sizable chunk of their salaries, right? beyond salaries, like the fact that WNBA players fly commercial. Can you imagine getting to your gate to find LeBron and the Lakers waiting to board with you? Or not being able to put your seat back so Kevin Durant could have some leg room before the big game? WNBA players not only fly commercial, the teams are punished if they don't. Last season, the owners of the New York Liberty were threatened with expulsion from the league and fined $500,000 for chartering a plane for their players during the second half of the season. Officials said it gave the team an unfair advantage, but players said it's an advantage they all should have. If you just took two connecting flights to get from New York to Phoenix, and now you're expected to play your best basketball, like. You're probably a little achy and tired, especially if you're six foot nine like Brittany Griner and you were sitting in a middle seat. So things like that clearly inhibit the league and contribute to this idea that I was referring to earlier, where you need to put on the best product in order to maximize revenue opportunities in order to increase those salaries and get better conditions. So it's sort of this self-fulfilling cycle that just keeps the WNBA and women's sports leagues in general from reaching their full potential and closing that gap with men's leagues that are more established and have the benefit of the doubt with investment and marketing and viewership opportunities too. One of the main justifications for paying WNBA players so little is that the league doesn't make as much money as the NBA. And we've all heard the critics, or haters as I like to call them, They say that WNBA players don't play as well as men, or they're not as exciting to watch. 
And while I think that point is mostly dumb, WNBA players aren't always given the tools they need to play at their best. Also, the NBA spends just a lot more money marketing their players and teams in terms of promotion and advertising dollars. Another thing, the WNBA is still really young. Men's sports leagues have had the benefit of being around for far longer, right? For as long as sports have been around, they've been associated with men. And so for the WNBA 25 years ago, which happens to coincide with the year I was born, it's very recent. I was nine when the WNBA launched and very tall for my age. I've been five, six since the fourth grade. Naturally, my dad wanted me to play basketball, despite the fact that I could not and still cannot walk and dribble a ball at the same time. But even still, when it launched, the WNBA was exciting. I remember the posters of Lisa Leslie and Cynthia Cooper and Cheryl Swoops. It was a big deal. And it just felt like a new era, where the only thing that could hold me back from the court was my lack of skill, not the lack of opportunity. But it doesn't really feel like the WNBA has had this kind of fanfare since it launched. It's tough to make the one-to-one comparison, but 25 years into the NBA's tenure, they were not financially successful and even close to the same place where the WNBA is in terms of stature and relevance and name recognition. So I think that there's a burden of proof for women's athletes that is just higher by nature of, you know, gender dynamics in the United States and around the world. But I think the problem in terms of crowds is, you know, the NBA draws more eyes any given game than the WNBA does typically. You know, only a certain number of games are on broadcast every year. Whereas you could probably find an NBA game within your package any single night. So it's harder to collect fans for women's sports if they're not accessible. Plus, there's obviously a stigma that exists around women's sports, right? We've all heard WNBA players get back to the kitchen, all of that garbage. But That obviously contributes as well. For a long time, it was just uncool to see this as a relevant, actual sports product. And I think we're starting to get to the point where we're combating that. But those are a lot of obstacles to overcome when we're talking about dollars coming in and actually ascribing value to something. So we're, we're getting there, but I think all of those things contribute to this pay gap and to the, the fewer eyes on women's sports. Are women athletes just valued and respected more in countries like Russia and other countries where people go to play? Why are they able to make so much more money there? Is there a bigger fandom? Like, what's going on? I think that it's sort of counterintuitive in in our minds that players have to go abroad to a not capitalistic country historically to to get their payday. But in terms of women's basketball players, specifically going to countries like Russia and China, before Brittany Griner wound up with UMMC, she played for a Chinese team. And I think they were paying her like $600,000. So not not chump change by any means. And I think because of the privately held nature of some of the teams in Russia and China, the salaries are exponentially higher. 
in Brittany Griner's case with UMMC Ekaterinburg, it's held by a Russian mining company and the primary owner of that company is a billionaire Russian oligarch. I spoke to a former Russian sports journalist who basically told me that all of these million dollar salaries for these players is pocket change for this oligarch, right? And so whether it's because he wants to ingratiate himself with the city that UMMC plays in, whether it's because he just wanted to like give back to the community or, you know, spend his money to promote his company or to get credibility in the Western world. You know, there are all these sorts of reasons why he may have been motivated to actually spend money on this team. And, you know, this applies to countless other popular clubs in Russia, in China, in other nations east of the United States. But the idea is that they have basically this endless flow of money that they can spend however they want. And it could be anything from a business venture to a selfishly motivated vanity project. But is women's sports popular in Russia? Like is women's basketball something that draws a large crowd? So when it comes to Katerinburg specifically, I, they regularly sell out their stadium, but that said, their stadium has 5,000 seats. So that's not paying the bills on these crazy salaries. I wouldn't say that women's basketball in particular is like any more popular in Russia than it is in the United States. Back in the era of the Soviet Union, they invested in their women's basketball national team and actually won two gold medals, late 1970s, early 1980s. And my understanding from speaking to a historian on Russian sports, actually, is that they were doing this as a form of, he told me, like, window dressing, and I put that in air quotes as well. The idea is, like, if you show the entire world that you value women in that way, then people will actually believe that your gender dynamics have evolved, even though at home they haven't at all. And so... Gender dynamics in Russia, I think, are getting better. You know, they're on the upward trajectory, but women are not valued the same way that they are in the United States. You know, for all of this conversation about the pay gap, it's a very different ballgame in Russia. And so I think that sports can be a microcosm for larger society and governments can use that to their advantage to, to sort of show a different face than what's behind that, I guess. Obviously, after this situation and everything you just said, people will be reconsidering even if they want to play overseas at all. But I wonder before this, why do athletes continue to play in the WNBA or some of these other women's leagues when they can make a lot more money? Is it for visibility in the U.S.? Is it you know, just because they want to play for a U.S. team, does it make them more marketable to be a U.S. player? Um, why even play in the WNBA at all? Um, I think both of the last two things you said are accurate, that you're more marketable if you play in the United States. I think players genuinely have a, a passion for growing the league and, and giving future generations what they're due. I was at an event and Sue Bird, who's one of the best players in the WNBA, was also there. And she, she spoke about this see-it-be-it moment and how she had it 
on an off chance watching a national team game. You know, players want to pay it forward. They want to see the next generation aspiring to be WNBA players. Anyone who's affiliated with women's sports in any way wants to see it become easier and better to be a professional athlete as a woman. And so I think that players play in the WNBA because they want to be that spark for some little girl somewhere. And so I think that's a big part of it. I think they want to grow the game in the States. I think a lot of times the brands that are based in the United States that sponsor these players, like say a Nike or an Adidas, there's probably some clause in those deals that suggests that you need to spend a certain amount of time in the States. So I think it would be difficult for a lot of players to get out of that. But, you know, to your point, Diana Taurasi, who is widely considered the WNBA's greatest player of all time, she leads the league in three-pointers and points. She sat a season out of the WNBA because her team paid for her to stay in Russia. She was playing for UMMC Katerinburg, I believe, and they said, We'll give you far more than your WNBA salary just to take it easy and take care of yourself. So I saw that situation and, you know, I thought it was possible that more players would end up doing something similar, especially with the change in the collective bargaining agreement that's coming down the pipeline. But I think the Griner situation probably gives plenty of people pause. I asked Meredith if she thinks this is a watershed moment for the WNBA. It was already not a good look that WNBA players chose to play their offseason in places where they have to overlook the country's human rights record to get a fair payday. And now it makes the WNBA look even worse that one of their top athletes is being detained in one of those countries. Meredith told me that if she's being realistic, she doesn't think things will improve immediately because the recent collective bargaining agreement already changed so many things. But she does think this situation will make players reevaluate their priorities. I do think that it's possible that players will look at this situation and be a little bit more cautious about playing overseas in the future. The collective bargaining agreement starting next year is going to start penalizing players for going overseas because sometimes those leagues overlap, right? So if you miss time in the WNBA, you're going to start getting penalized for it by losing money off of your salary. And so I personally interpreted that as, oh, well, that's a no-brainer. If I'm Brittany Griner and I'm making a million dollars in Russia, I'm staying in Russia. But now... If, if the choice is, you know, maybe you get a million dollars or maybe you wind up in a situation where you're detained in a foreign country that's an adversary to the United States, maybe I'm more inclined to stay in my WNBA market and take that opportunity to help market the WNBA and take that extra money from the league itself. And there are plenty of opportunities to make money. But I think you might see players compromising a bit more because this is scary. Let's be frank. This is terrifying. We don't know when when Brittany Griner is going to come back. The U.S. government has not said much, but they've made it clear that it's going to be very difficult to get her back anytime soon, given the current dynamics. So I don't know. I, I can't speak for anyone in particular, but I know that if I've regularly gone to Russia, I'm not sure I want to go next year. That's scary.
the pay gap that enticed Brittany Griner to play in Russia in the first place isn't just a basketball phenomenon. According to one 2019 study, male golfers made an average of 25 times what women golfers made. And then there's baseball and softball. Are you ready for this? The average professional baseball player's salary is 671 times higher than what the average professional softball player makes. But women have been starting to level the playing field in some sports. Take tennis, for example, where the average salaries are less than $100,000 apart for men and women. And the prize money for a lot of the big tennis tournaments is also equal now. And this took decades. Players like Billie Jean King and Venus and Serena Williams have been vocal about equal pay for a long time. And thanks to their work, women in tennis are some of the highest-paid professional athletes. And then there's this good news. The U.S. women's national soccer team used Equal Pay Day to celebrate a big win at the White House. Back in February, they reached a massive settlement with U.S. soccer after years of being unfairly underpaid compared to the men's team. They also got a promise from their bosses that they'll get equal pay going forward. This Women's History Month, we're celebrating by highlighting some very cool millennial women who are breaking barriers and making history in their fields. And today, we're going to talk about some of the inspiring stories of the trailblazing women who are fighting to close the gender pay gap in sports. We want to tell you about three women who've been putting some serious cracks in a different kind of glass ceiling in sports. Coaching and management. You know, telling the men what to do. Including in sports, women don't traditionally play at the pro level. I think we live in a society where it's often assumed that men know things until they prove they don't, and it's assumed women don't know things until they prove they do. And that hinders a lot of opportunities. Katie Sowers became the first woman to have ever coached in a Super Bowl when her 49ers went to the big game in 2020. But she was a player first. She was on the U.S. women's national football team that won the world championship in 2013. She's also the first openly gay person to coach in a Super Bowl. She said for a long time, she didn't even know coaching football was an option for a woman until the NFL hired its first female coach in 2014. In an interview, she told a reporter that she didn't care about being the first. She just wanted to make sure there's a second, third, fourth, and fifth. I continue to believe every day that I could do it, and then I just stay focused on what I want to do. Natalie Nakase made NBA history in 2014 when she became its first-ever woman coach. Before that, she was one of the first Asian-American women playing pro ball, even though she's just 5'2". But that was tall enough to crack the NBA's glass ceiling. Heading into this NBA season, there were seven women on coaching staffs in the league. I've many times thought about quitting, you know, but obviously there's moments and obviously, you know, especially now as things have changed so much. Rachel Balkovic spent a long time trying to break into baseball coaching and management. She even changed her name on her resume at one point to Ray. But this year, she finally made history when she was named the manager of the Tampa Tarpons. They're a minor league affiliate of the New York Yankees. The Skims website has a timeline of amazing women who are breaking the rules and bustling up barriers. It's all a part of our Women's History Month celebration. Follow the link in our show notes to check it out. And next week, we'll tell you about a few more women we think you should know. That's it for the show this week. And if you're listening to this, you should know we think you're awesome. And we want to know more about you and hear what you think about the show. 
and we made a really easy way for you to tell us. It's a survey. It takes about 10 minutes, and we'd love for you to fill it out. Just go to www.theskim.com slash pop survey. That's www.theskim with two M's dot com slash pop survey. And pop survey is all one word. I'm Bridget Armstrong, host and senior producer of the show. And I work with a wonderful team to make it every week. Alicia Key is the show's producer. Andrew Calloway is our senior engineer. Graylin Brashear is our senior director of audio. Thanks to Meredith Cash for talking to me for this episode. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode. And in the meantime, be sure to rate, subscribe, tell a friend, and fill out that survey.